I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-basis. And today we're excited to discuss one of the most interesting uh, constitutional issues to uh, come up before the Supreme Court, uh, and that is the question of the power of the legislature to redistrict. Before I get into those constitutional arguments, though, I want to share the exciting news that today the National Constitution Center announced that we are joining a really exciting new podcast distribution network created by Slate magazine called Panoply. Basically, Slate has assembled 12 of the most highly uh, performing podcasts in the country, and we are thrilled and honored to be among them. Our new colleagues include podcasts produced by the New York Times Magazine, uh, by New York Magazine, by the Huffington Post, and uh, by WBUR, and we are really delighted to be among them. So all that means is that you, our great listeners, uh, should be able to expect better audio quality. Our podcasts in the future will no longer sound as if they're being recorded in a bathtub, and we uh, hope that we'll continue to provide the smart constitutional conversations that uh, have, have led you to be tuning in so far. All right, let me get uh, right to it. So we're examining this week an upcoming Supreme Court case that could determine the future of legislative redistricting and movements to reform the redistricting process. Uh, you know that there's a strong debate in this country about whether or not the way we draw legislative lines has increased uh, polarization, and Arizona, moved by those arguments in 2000, passed Proposition 106, which took congressional redistricting authority, which had been previously vested in the Arizona state legislature, and gave it to a new Arizona independent redistricting commission. The commission has the power to redraw the congressional map, uh, and although there are limitations on how its members are appointed and what procedures must be followed. And the question is whether Arizona, by adopting this new independent commission by a popular referendum, violated the elections clause of Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution, which states that the, quote, times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Uh, joining me to discuss this really important and interesting case are two rising stars in the field. Michael Morley is an assistant professor of law at Duane O. Andreas School of Law at Barry University, where he teaches election law and constitutional law. Michael's represented several parties, candidates, and voters in election and campaign finance litigation, and was counsel of record at the Supreme Court for Sean McCutcheon in the landmark case of McCutcheon versus FEC. Nick Stephanopoulos is assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School, where he too teaches election law and constitutional law. Nick often writes about law and politics for general publications and is involved in several policy reform initiatives. He's also been named to the National Law Journal's Chicago's 40 Under 40. All right, gentlemen, let's get right to it. Michael, let's start off by explaining the constitutional stakes in the case. The lower court rejected the argument that Arizona's decision to create this commission by popular referendum violates the election clause. Tell us what the lower court said and why the challengers believe that that was wrong. So the lower court looked at the text of the election clause, its reference to legislature, 
And rather than interpreting that term to refer to the institutional legislature within each state that has the general lawmaking authority that's comprised of elected representatives that periodically convenes, it instead, based on a previous Supreme Court case called Davis versus Hildebrandt, it instead interpreted the term legislature more broadly to refer to the totality of a state's legislative authority. And so it looked at the election clause as a grant to the state to regulate federal elections through whatever legislative processes its state constitution authorized. So because the Arizona state constitution allows laws to be passed via public uh, referendum, the court had no problem upholding the, the, constitution, the constitutionality of the process used here to enact, to not, to, to enact the statute and also had no, had no qualms about the fact that substantively, if you, put aside the, the, if you put aside concerns about how the law was enacted, substantively the law purports to be stripping the legislature of its authority to regulate federal elections and instead vests that power to draw congressional district lines in this new commission. And so I would contend that there's actually a double violation of the elections clause here, both a procedural violation because this commission was created via initiative rather than by the legislature, which is the sole constitutionally authorized organ of the state to enact these laws. And then secondly, again, putting aside the process by which this law was enacted, substantively, the statute purports to strip the legislature of its redistricting authority that it gets from the U.S. Constitution and confers it on an entity that isn't the legislature, this, this commission. Great. Thanks very much for that uh, excellent introduction. Uh, Nick, uh, do you have anything to add to uh, Michael's description of the lower court uh, opinion? And uh, he, he says that this is both a, a, a procedural and a substantive violation. Uh, tell us whether you think the Supreme Court would be required to overturn those previous cases that uh, Michael mentioned in order to rule against this uh, independent commission. Um, sure, yeah, thanks very much, Jeff, and Michael for what I thought was a, a very accurate description of, uh, of what the lower court held. Um, I would just point out, you know, the lower court did what lower courts are supposed to do. Uh, which is to rely on uh, relevant precedents. And uh, here there are uh, a pair of on-point Supreme Court decisions from a while ago, but still quite relevant, uh, that establish that in this context, in the court's view, uh, legislature doesn't mean a multi-member body that passes laws itself. Uh, it refers instead to the state's lawmaking power uh, in its entirety. So, you know, that's what two separate precedents expressly hold. And the lower court felt, I think correctly, uh, obligated to follow those precedents. Uh, as to Michael's position that there's a uh, double violation of the elections clause here, um, that would hold only if one disregards the precedents. So if one decides contrary to Hildebrandt and contrary to Smiley, that legislature actually only means the multi-member lawmaking body itself, uh, then I do agree with Michael that there would be the double violation that he referred to. Uh, I just think that you know, as a matter of precedent and also as a matter of uh, multiple theoretical and policy considerations, uh, there's no good reason to uh, adopt that very sort of narrow crabbed meaning of what legislature means here. 
Great. Well, now we've joined the debate dramatically. Um, uh, Michael, Nick has basically said that in order to rule on the side you're defending, the Supreme Court would have to overturn these two precedents uh, as inconsistent with the text of the Constitution. Do you agree that those precedents would have to be overturned? And tell us more about your fascinating argument that you think not only the text of the Election Clause, but other parts of the Constitution support your belief that uh, legislatures mean institutional legislatures and, and voters can't strip those legislatures of the power to regulate um, elections. Sure. So starting with precedent, I think that the Supreme Court actually could strike down this law without revisiting its existing precedents, although it would be limited to striking it down on the substantive grounds that the law strips the legislature of authority that it gets directly from the U.S. Constitution and purports to confer that power on a separate commission. Hildebrandt, which is the first case that uh, both Nick and I were discussing, simply said that a referendum is a legitimate process through which federal election laws may be enacted. And I want to come back and talk about that more in a minute. And Smiley simply relied on Hildebrand and said that a gubernatorial veto of a federal election law could be legally effective, that the Constitution didn't prohibit governors from vetoing state laws purporting to regulate federal elections. Neither of these precedents stand for the principle that a state, through however the law is enacted, may completely strip a state legislature of its ability to draw congressional districts or regulate any other aspect of the electoral process and confer that power on an entity totally independent of the legislature. So I think that to uphold the lower court's ruling would require the Supreme Court to go beyond existing precedent, and you know, conversely, the Supreme Court easily could reverse the lower court's ruling without revisiting those precedents. But I do think that there is good reason for the Supreme Court to revisit those precedents, simply because, as I had said before, Smiley, the veto case, rested I would argue almost exclusively on Hildebrandt and how Hildebrandt had subsequently come to be read. But Hildebrandt, as I explain in my, in my piece, inadvertently ruled on the elections clause issue. The, the parties had raised an elections clause objection to the use of a referendum to, uh, to enact a state law to regulate federal elections, and the Supreme Court actually never directly addressed the elections clause issue. Instead, it transmuted it into a guarantee clause issue. There's a separate provision in the Constitution that says each state shall guarantee to its citizens a representative form of government, and the Supreme Court basically said those types of claims aren't justiciable. The courts just aren't allowed to adjudicate whether or not a form of government is sufficiently representative. And the Supreme Court in misinterpreted, I would contend, the party's objection to the use of a referendum to enact an, uh, to enact an election statute as arising under the guarantee clause instead of actually being an election clause claim. And so even though Hildebrandt wound up going off on this guarantee clause non-justiciability reasoning, it has subsequently come to be interpreted and subsequently come to be cited for the proposition that the word legislature in the elections clause broadly refers to any exercise of legislative authority, including initiatives. But if you actually go back and you, re and you read the opinion, 
that's not what the that's not the reasoning leading up to the judgment. So I do think that this is of of, of an exciting and unique opportunity for the Supreme Court to be able to revisit these precedents and the reasoning underlying them. To turn to your second question about the article, my piece argues that the Supreme Court should use a method of constitutional interpretation called intratextualism in determining what the word legislature means in the elections clause. Intratextualism urges readers to treat documents like the Constitution as a whole, not as a piece of randomly conglomerated parts, but as a, as a coherent whole. And particularly if you look to the unamended Constitution, the, 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 the Constitution of 1789, there's good reason for, for doing so. That document uses the term legislature repeatedly, which makes intertextualism uh, an appropriate mechanism for trying to interpret it. Intertextualism urges readers where if you have a clause, a word, or a phrase in a legal document and you're trying to figure out what it means, consider how it's used in other clauses in the same document. Consider how it's used in other places in the same document and consider whether your proposed interpretation would make sense in those other places because there at least is a presumption that within the course of a single document, a term of art, a technical term, a legal term is going to be used consistently. That in general, you, would, you wouldn't expect there to be unexplained changes in meaning or unexplained changes in definition halfway through a document. And if you look to every other place where the word legislature is used, the text, the context, historical practice, the legislative history, the, 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 the drafting debates, make it unambiguously clear that these were references to the institutional legislature within each state comprised of elected representatives. Other clauses in the Constitution speak of legislatures convening, legislatures going into recess, legislatures being comprised of members, people being elected to legislatures. So in every other context, the Constitution is using the term legislature to refer to, an, to a particular discrete institutional entity within each state. I argue that at, a, at the very least, this creates a strong presumption that the Constitution is using the word in the same sense, in the same manner, in the Elections Clause, and that there's really nothing about the context of the Elections Clause to suggest that not only is the Constitution using a different definition, but it's using a fairly unique one, a fairly unusual one, one that most people in hearing the word legislature typically wouldn't spring to mind. And so at a minimum, I think intratextualism shifts the burden to the other side to explain why would the framers be using the word legislature in a unique, unusual, rare sense just in this one clause, when throughout the rest of the Constitution they're using it in its more conventional context. Great. Okay, Nick, so Michael has thrown down the gauntlet and said that not only the text, but also history and context and the appearance of the word legislature throughout the document uh, support striking down this commission. Uh, I'd like your response to his, his uh, arguments and also a response broadly to the question, is this an argument against the entire constitutionality of the initiative process? The briefs in this case are full of claims that the framers of the constitution believed that the best men should choose uh, electoral districts and that unbridled democracy should be rejected in favor of republicanism. Basically, are the challengers 
introducing a kind of originalist uh, argument to call into question the idea that states can change their election systems through referendum? Uh, sure, great. Thanks a lot for that. So, uh, you know, I think Michael has done a great job articulating uh, a textualist, you know, he calls it an intratextualist argument uh, for, for striking down the commission here. So I think it's important to take a step back and to recognize that there are uh, multiple very significant modes of interpreting the Constitution. And uh, text or intratextualism is just uh, one of those multiple modes. Uh, other modes are uh, looking at precedent, so respecting the court's own prior decisions. Uh, the consequences of a decision one way versus another uh, consequences are another vital mode of constitutional interpretation. You know, the Constitution, as has been said famously by Justice Jackson, I believe, uh, is not a suicide pact. And so if terrible consequences would ensue from uh, one particular reading, um, that can be a very strong reason not to adopt that particular reading. Uh, and we also have broader theories of judicial review and judicial intervention, uh, you know, theories of thinking about the role of the court in our democracy uh, that also guide how we should uh, resolve particular cases. So, you know, I think Michael has laid out a modestly persuasive textual argument, uh, but he's omitted any consideration of all of these other vital modalities of constitutional interpretation, and all of those point in a very different direction. Um, let me quickly note on the, textual, on the textual point itself, there are you know, reasonable, clever textual arguments going both ways here. So you know, Michael can point to various other places in the Constitution where legislature seems to refer to a multi-member body specifically. Uh, but the Elections Clause also refers to the time, place, and manner of holding elections. Time, place, and manner are meant to be procedural aspects of elections. They're not meant to allow uh, anybody to dictate substantive outcomes. But what is the power to redistrict other than a power to dictate substantive outcomes by drawing districts in one particular configuration and not another? So I think there's you know, an equally plausible textual argument that the time, place, and manner part of the Elections Clause does not authorize state legislative control over redistricting with the goal of assuring particular electoral outcomes in the states. Uh, in addition, the Elections Clause says that the states only get a first right to act, but Congress at any time can alter the state's regulations in whatever way it sees fit. Uh, here, Congress passed a law in 1911 where it explicitly uh, uh, recognized districts drawn through whatever method the state decides to adopt. So here I would say this entire debate over what legislature means or doesn't mean is beside the point because we only get to have that debate if Congress hasn't acted. Here, however, Congress has acted in 1911 and it's made it very clear that it'll allow districts to be drawn in whatever method the states want. Um, so that's just textualism. You know, even if we're being just textualists, there are good arguments going both ways. Uh, the more important point that I want to make, though, is that we're not just textualists and we shouldn't be just textualists. And once we start considering other modes of constitutional interpretation, 
it starts to seem a little silly that we would strike down this, uh, this particular reform in Arizona. Uh, let me just mention a couple of non-textualist considerations. Um, one is the, the basic point that legislatures are the very last institutions that we want responsible for redistricting. You know, when a legislature is able to redistrict, what it inevitably does is protect incumbents, gerrymander against the party not in control of the legislature. So we should want courts to intervene in this scenario to prevent cases of self-dealing and gerrymandering and manipulation by legislatures. And we should be thrilled when a state decides to adopt a commission. You know, if a commission does the redistricting, it takes self-interested legislators out of the district drawing game, uh, and it does so without any need for the courts to get involved. So it's a win-win it's a situation where you get the benefits of getting the, the foxes out of the hen house, and the courts don't even have to do the dirty work of getting the fox out of the hen house. Uh, a related point is that we have a lot of empirical evidence on, you know, do commissions work or not? And it turns out that both in the United States and abroad, redistricting commissions work a lot better than legislative redistricting. So plans drawn by commissions systematically are uh, more competitive uh, and more symmetric, more fair in their treatment of the major parties. So these are vital democratic outcomes we're talking about, you know, partisan fairness and a high level of electoral competitiveness. We get those crucial, crucial values through commissions. We sabotage those values when we allow legislatures to do the redistricting. Um, and one final point is that legislatures are, uh, or sorry, institutions other than legislatures aren't only involved in redistricting of federal elections. Uh, we have institutions like the governor and the courts and uh, the voter initiative process and state agencies involved systematically in every aspect of uh, federal elections, campaign finance, uh, minority representation, the regulation of political parties, access to the franchise, etc. So under Michael's reading and under the, the plaintiff's reading here, any involvement by any non-legislative actor in any aspect of federal elections would be unconstitutional. So that, you know, to put it bluntly, is insane. You know, to say that the only body that can be involved in the regulation of federal elections is the last body that we want to have that power, you know, that would be both a revolution across our entire electoral landscape uh, and just a terrible idea. So um, I guess that counts as uh, fully engaging the debate. So I'll, uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> That's great. It does indeed fully engage the debate, and you've made two powerful sets of points. The first relate to challenging Michael's textualist and originalist arguments, and then you've raised a series of uh, pragmatic uh, arguments about the dramatic consequences of striking these down. Uh, Michael, I, you, you can certainly respond to both, but just to focus the uh, originalist point, uh, is this Bush v. Gore revisited? Uh, they're the majority interpreting the elections clause of uh, Article 2 uh, said that uh, each state shall appoint in a manner as the legislature may direct a number of electors. The majority interpreted uh, that to exclude the role that the Florida Constitution had 
had set up for the uh, courts to, to be a part of uh, the process. And critics said both that that was uh, not a good textual reading and also inconsistent with original understanding because as Justice Breyer put it in his dissent, the framers meant to exclude judges from this sort of judicial oversight. This was quintessentially a political question, he said, and the framers would not have wanted the courts to be second guessing these quintessentially political decisions. So maybe maybe start with those points and, and then, then maybe we start with that because there's a lot there and then I'll throw it back to uh, uh, Nick, for some more of the uh, pragmatic arguments, and you can respond to those after that. Sure. It's interesting that you bring up Bush v. Gore because both Bush as well as the uh, Palm Beach County case that came before it actually provide support for this position because particularly the unanimous opinion in Palm Beach County was concerned that the that the Florida Supreme Court was treating the election law at issue there just as it would any other state law, without recognizing the fact that under the U.S. Constitution, the institutional state legislature has unique authority to enact election laws. And so therefore, uh, on Palm Beach County and language in both uh, the three-justice concurrence in Bush v. Gore, the four-justice dissent in Bush v. Gore, so you know, a, a majority of the Supreme Court, supported the position that when looking at state election laws, precisely because it's the institutional legislature that is given authority specifically from the U.S. Constitution, the, the authority is not conferred on the state as a whole, but rather is conferred directly on the state legislature, that there's an obligation to give special deference to the, to the text of those statutes. And the, con, and the concern in both of those opinions was whether or not sufficient deference was being being given to the plain meaning, to the work of the legislature itself. In looking at the originalist perspective beyond that, if you look at the Constitution, the, the framers of the Constitution deliberately, and you know, as a matter, as a result of their own political theories, placed responsibility for virtually every aspect of elections in the hands of the political branches. The, each House of Congress is responsible for ultimately uh, ruling on the elections concerning its own members, the returns of its own members. They're responsible for de deciding who to seat, whether to expel anybody. If you turn to the president, it's the houses of Congress that are responsible for counting the electoral votes, for determining the validity of the electoral votes. And so the framers themselves have shown repeatedly that they're comfortable with the political branches ultimately or at least playing a substantial part in both not only not only laying out the groundwork for but in some cases even executing the electoral process i don't agree with nick's point though that if you take the if you take this role seriously and in particular if you take the word legislature to refer to the institutional legislature that you're totally banishing any other entity, be it the governor, be it administrative agencies, be it the courts, from playing a role in the electoral process, notwithstanding the, notwithstanding the constitutional delegation to legislatures to regulate the manner of federal elections, 
it's still the role of the courts to make sure that laws are faithfully implemented and to make sure that constitutional rights and constitutional restrictions are enforced, including the, the, the right to vote. And so it could very well be that if, a, if an election-related statute enacted by a state legislature violates equal protection or violates the, the substantive right to vote, there's certainly nothing unconstitutional about the court striking it down. That would be a court fulfilling, its, fulfilling one of its highest duties under the, under the Constitution. It, one other point concerning the, 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 the originalist argument, if you look to state constitutions at the time that the federal constitution was enacted back in 1789, every, or just about every single uh, state constitution at the time used the word legislature. And if you actually go back and look at the text of those constitutions, they unambiguously either expressly define the term legislature to be comprised of the General Assembly and the Senate or comprised of a state-level House of Representatives and state-level Senate, or based on those constitutions' discussion of what the legislature is and what its powers are, it's indisputably clear that they're referring just to this institutional legislature. So in trying to figure out what the word constitution means in the elections clause, I think it would be remarkable to say that not only is this provision using the word differently than anywhere else in the constitution itself, but it's being used differently than it's been used in any state constitution throughout the entire country, that the framers, without any shred of evidence in the historical debates, without any shred of evidence in the, the newspaper articles surrounding this, almost secretly came up with this special definition that applies just to this one particular provision and nowhere else in the rest of the Constitution or any of the other organic documents of the period. So certainly from an originalist perspective, I, and a textual perspective, I think the argument is strong. The, this case, I think, really comes down to more what is your approach to constitutional interpretation? Is it going to be driven primarily by consequences and primarily by seeing what outcome you prefer, or do you start with the document itself and try to figure out what it means? Great. Okay, uh, Nick, you can take one more beat on the textualist points if you will, but you made a very provocative argument, which is that from a consequentialist perspective, uh, striking down these independent commissions would be, as you put it, insane. Uh, a number of states currently have redistricting uh, commissions that are independent, including California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Montana, New Jersey, New York, and Washington. You write that all of these bodies would be on thin legal ice if the Arizona Commission is struck down. All of them are plainly not the legislature itself, yet exercise authority with respect to an aspect of federal elections. How big a deal would it be to strike down all of these independent commissions? What would the practical consequences be, and what could states do to resurrect the commissions if the Supreme Court rules against them? Uh, sure. So I, I'm happy to let the textual uh, uh, debate rest for now. Uh, I, I think Michael has made you know, various persuasive textual arguments, and I think there are also textual points that go the other way. So you know, I would say the textual arguments here are uh, largely a draw, and when that's the case, uh, it seems especially appropriate to rely on uh, precedent, on consequences, uh, on broader theories of judicial intervention, uh, and to let those considerations really be the focus uh, instead of textual points that, uh, that go in both directions. Um, so in terms of consequences for commissions, um, it's really hard to see how 
just about any redistricting commission that's responsible for congressional district lines uh, could survive an, an adverse decision here. You know, if the legislature really means just the multi-member body itself, and if that's the only body that's allowed to set the time and place and manner of elections, and if time and place and manner includes redistricting, uh, which itself is contestable, uh, then, you know, the basic syllogism of the plaintiffs would seem to apply. You know, all of these commissions in New York and California and Connecticut, et cetera, none of them are the legislature. Uh, therefore, uh, it follows pretty clearly that none of them should be uh, allowed to exist either. Um, so what happens if they fall? You know, from one perspective, not that much. It just means that the 10 or 11 states that have commissions at the congressional level, uh, they then start to look like the other 40 states that don't have commissions uh, at the congressional level. Uh, the point is that would be a real, real shame, though. So commissions in those states that have tried them have dramatically improved the character of democracy in those states. You know, commissions have not completely solved, but started to alleviate some of the very worst aspects of modern American politics. So I don't know why we would want a world where competitiveness goes down in 10 or 11 states uh, because those states' commissions are struck down. And I don't know why we'd want a world where partisan gerrymandering again becomes possible in 10 or 11 states where that phenomenon has been taken off the table uh, by the commission. Um, and I agree with Michael that, you know, it's, it's not completely clear how dire the consequences would be of, of, this, of a ruling uh, in favor of the Arizona legislature. Uh, it is at least possible that state courts would retain uh, their role, uh, although I would point out that the, the main point of Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush v. Gore was that sometimes excessive judicial involvement uh, can violate the equivalent to the elections clause in Article 2. So if that's true in the Article 2 Bush v. Gore context, I don't see why excessive state court involvement on Michael's account couldn't also violate the elections clause. Uh, and I do think that if commissions are not allowed in redistricting, I don't see why governors would be allowed to veto district plans. Uh, I also don't see why state agencies could play a role in administering either redistricting or any other aspect of uh, federal elections. You know, these bodies also aren't the legislature. Uh, to the extent that these bodies are involved in any aspect of federal elections, then it isn't just the legislature that's setting the time, place, and manner. Uh, so I do think the, the consequences here are impossible to restrict to redistricting. You know, they'd be bad enough if they were just limited to redistricting, uh, but I don't see how you contain the damage there and how it doesn't just amount to, you know, really an election law revolution that completely changes how we think about the regulation of federal elections. Great. Okay, Mike. So on the consequences point, uh, Nick has said that the consequences of this decision against the Arizona Commission would be dramatic, that congressional redistricting commissions in several other states would be on thin ice as well, as would the decision by 48 states to give the governor's power to veto congressional plans, as well as the many states that allow 
state courts to evaluate congressional maps validity. Do you agree with his estimation of the possible practical consequences of such a decision? And should the fact that many of these practices have been in place since the progressive era give the Supreme Court pause before embracing a rule that would call all of this into question? Well, I certainly agree that the validity of at least many of the other commissions would be called into question by a ruling by a ruling along the lines that I'm suggesting here. I certainly don't agree, though, that this would jeopardize the ability of state governors to veto election law legislation because, again, the legislature would retain its authority to enact laws, would retain its authority to override gubernatorial vetoes. If anything, the, 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 a gubernatorial veto simply raises the number of votes necessary for the enactment of a, a statute, and in this case an election-related statute, and the Constitution doesn't specify that the legislatures have to pass laws by a simple majority or by any particular percentage. So particularly so long as gubernatorial vetoes, as I believe they are throughout the country, are subject to legislative override, they do not strip the legislature of their of, of its authority to regulate federal elections. It is simply a part of the legislative process that the state constitution creates. And so I don't think a ruling in this case would would jeopardize gubernatorial vetoes. I I somewhat agree with Nick that yes, you could imagine an overbroad grant of authority to a, an administrative agency to regulate federal election to regulate federal elections could be struck down and in fact uh, an, an Ohio court did did just that after a federal court had invalidated the ballot access requirements for third parties to get on the ballot the state legislature was unable to reach a consensus on what the new ballot access requirements would be. And so the state secretary of state just came up, came up with a new set. And a federal court struck down those ballot access, administrative ballot access standards under the elections clause ruling that there was no, no delegation from the legislature, no legislative standards. There was no basis enacted by the legislature for the executive branch to create the state executive branch to create these ballot access requirements for minor parties and so found that an uh, found that an elections clause violation existed and, and then the state legislature came back and enacted its own requirements so i again i i do agree that this would that a a, a ruling in petitioner's favor would call into question the validity of other commissions but I don't think that it would have the widespread type of dire consequences that you know, Nick suggests beyond that. And you know, to, to the extent that he's relying on consequences as a reason for adopting what I think he might even agree would be at least an unusual definition of legislature, not the, not the most normal or perhaps most expected definition of legislature. The, the consequences at issue here, as, as he acknowledged, are that the minority of states that have these commissions would simply redistrict according to the way that the overwhelming majority of the country is currently engaging in redistricting. So this doesn't seem to be the type of situation where the practical consequences are so unacceptable, so dire, that you kind of have to depart from maybe what a strict originalist or a strict textualist interpretation of the of the constitution would be 
simply asking judges to decide for themselves whether or not the outcomes of elections are fairer or better if you have these commissions redistricting rather than if you have legislatures redistricting, that in and of itself seems to be a quintessential political question that judges institutionally should not be engaging in. And that seems to turn constitutional interpretation into primarily a policy exercise, and w which is why, again, while certainly you want to be aware of what the consequences are, I think that it's very dangerous to have those be a primary driving force in what you're, how you're going to interpret a term in the Constitution. What, one other quick point I want to add, by the way, there are clauses in the Constitution, due process, equal protection, cruel and unusual punishment, that are, that are vague, that are general, that are referring to principles, and that arguably you know, invite interpreters to construe them in light of you know, modern society, in light of changed circumstances. Legislature is not that type of word. Legislature isn't referring to some general principle or some you know, abstract moral concept. It's a fairly concrete term that there's certainly no reason to think has evolved over time that if you ask that again, the, what a legislature is today is any different from what it was you know, 200 years ago in the sense that you know, talking about what equal protection might mean today obviously is very different from what it meant you know, when the Equal Protection Clause was, was originally ratified. So even to the extent you know, that, and you know, Nick, Nick hasn't expressly alluded to this, but even to the extent that you, know, you do believe that certain terms in the Constitution need to maintain some sort of modern vibrancy, this doesn't seem to be one of those. This isn't hearkening to some principle that we need to apply based on changed circumstances. Great. All right. It's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Uh, Nick, you've written that the Supreme Court is on the cusp of rejecting one of the best ideas for reforming American elections. How do you think the court will, in fact, rule? And if it does reject the Arizona Commission, what other reforms will be possible in the states? Uh, sure. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for that. Uh, so you know, it's hard for me to imagine why the court decided to hear the case in full. Uh, if the court didn't feel inclined to, to side with the Arizona legislature. Uh, you know, so this is an issue that has been largely settled for roughly 100 years. Uh, you know, we haven't had a Supreme Court case on this topic uh, since Smiley and Hildebrandt uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and the issue has come up before, and the court has refused to consider the cases on the merits. Uh, so, you know, it's hard for me to imagine why the court decided to hear it in full uh, unless the court was substantially inclined to uh, decide with the plaintiffs. Uh, so that's why I wrote that the court is on the cusp. Uh, you, know, you, don't, you don't decide to hear a case like this uh, unless you think that there are some good arguments that the, the plaintiffs are making. Uh, my hope still would be that when the court decided to hear the case in full, it wasn't aware of uh, all of the consequences that might result from a decision in favor of the plaintiffs, uh, and that you know, if the briefing process accomplishes anything, uh, maybe it'll inform the court about uh, uh, some of the uh, unwanted, maybe unexpected uh, consequences of a decision here. Um, and I think the, the second part of your question was, you know, so what, what, what can the states do if there is an adverse decision? 
so one, one silver lining is that nothing we've talked about today uh, affects any efforts at state legislative reform. So there are uh, quite a few additional commissions that uh, are responsible for state legislative redistricting only. And all of those commissions should be completely unaffected by this case. You know, this case only deals with uh, federal elections. So there is that silver lining that state legislative level reforms uh, can go on uh, untouched. Uh, in addition, Congress retains the power here to step in and mandate or require or do uh, absolutely whatever it wants with respect to federal elections. Uh, so another potential silver lining is that if Arizona has its way here uh, and takes reform off the table at the state level, uh, pressure might build for Congress to act. So, you know, Congress hasn't really done much with its power over federal redistricting. Uh, and that's because the, the focus of reformers has always been state level change. Uh, so if state level change becomes impossible, uh, I expect that you'll see greater mobilization to convince Congress itself to act. Uh, this won't happen anytime soon. It certainly won't happen under uh, current divided government. Um, but I could imagine that reformers will in the longer term succeed in making uh, real redistricting reform uh, part of one or hopefully both parties' national platforms. Uh, and so there might be a possibility of uh, far more sweeping reform at the federal level down the road. Um, that said, we all know how difficult federal legislation is to pass. And uh, legislation of this sort that fundamentally threatens uh, the way things are done around Washington and throughout the country, um, you know, this is not the kind of legislation that politicians like to pass. So, you know, I'm not too hopeful that we'd be getting federal reform anytime soon. Uh, but I do at least see a scenario where uh, a decision for the plaintiffs here uh, results in building pressure for a real national solution. And if we got such a national solution, um, I would consider that to be uh, a price well worth paying for uh, a bad decision here. Excellent. Uh, Michael, it's time for your closing argument. How do you think the court will rule in this case, and why does the case matter? I'm cautiously optimistic that the court is likely to invalidate the commission. I, I agree with Nick's analysis that the fact that the court chose to grant certiorari in this case suggests that it might have concerns about the, the lower court's interpretation. Like I said, it, it need not necessarily overturn its precedents. It need not necessarily overturn Hildebrandt and Smiley because, again, this is the first, this is the first uh, case the court's considered where the state law at issue entirely stripped the legislature of its, its authority to regulate a certain aspect of the federal electoral process. So this you know, could be a narrow decision that simply says you can't entirely cut the legislature out but leaves a role open for other entities such as commissions as long as it's you know, not unlimited, as long as it's, it's properly circumscribed. Or you know, the, the, the court could, could go a step further and 
revit, you know, overturn Davis, overturn Smiley, and hold that legislature means something. It doesn't if, – if someone says that the legislature enacted a law, no one thinks it mean, that means it got enacted through a referendum or it got enacted through an initiative. Legislature is a concrete term that means something, and I think that that is the type of argument that would appeal to potentially enough justices on the court to, to hit the magic five. So I am, I am looking forward to its ruling. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both, Michael Morley and Nick Stephanopoulos, for a truly invigorating discussion of one of the central constitutional issues that the court is confronting this term. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.